You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and corporate media. Today, we have Jeanette Charles from Venezuela Analysis to talk to us about the Afro-Venezuelan community. Hello, Jeanette. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing well this morning. Thank you. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do at Venezuela Analysis? Sure. I work with Venezuela Analysis. We are an online multimedia English language platform that is the only one that has a full-time on-the-ground team in Venezuela. We've been doing work there since 2003. And we were created as a media outlet and collective of folks who were really dedicated to bringing English language people's communities information about Venezuela from a more Bolivarian left and progressive perspective and from voices on the ground. My role at Venezuela Analysis is as the International Solidarity Liaison, which essentially means that I help to organize our different relationships across different movement spaces, our involvement and support for different solidarity coalitions, and also helping to organize any sort of campaigns or events, including delegations. We have had two international delegations to Venezuela in the last two years, one in 2017 inside the Bolivarian Revolution. There's actually a short documentary about about that delegation and in 2018 where we accompanied the presidential elections of Nicolas Maduro and we've had activists, journalists, lawyers, academics, general, um, you know, folks who are interested in Venezuela participate in those delegations. Okay. And you identify as part of the Haitian Venezuelan diaspora, right? I actually, my family is from Haiti on my father's side, and so I identify as a daughter of the Haitian diaspora, and I've lived and worked in Venezuela for several years, also tied to a lot of the Haitian community there and Afro-Venezuelan communities. Okay, well, thank you for coming. I know, uh, I honestly don't know what you guys are going through because we're seeing, I guess, a disaster here that hopefully we can unite to avert. And so a lot of people, kind of Americans at least, when they see a lot of Venezuelans, they kind of see more, I guess it's not as racially diverse as the actual Venezuelan diaspora. Mm So um, do you want to quickly talk about the Afro-Venezuelan diaspora? Of course. So yeah, Venezuela is a majority Black nation. According to the 2010 census, at least 60% of Venezuelans identify of African descent. And that's really palpable in all parts of the country, not just the Caribbean coastline, but all over in different regions, in the countryside, in the Amazons, in the Andes. Uh, There's definitely a very present African descendant and indigenous population in Venezuela, which is something that definitely corporate media does not speak to. The only times that we've seen, for example, corporate media acknowledge for Venezuelans and indigenous peoples in Venezuela is when they've, you know, used racist remarks to refer to former President Chavez and current President Nicolas Maduro. But there's a very rich history of Afro-Venezuelan and indigenous resistance, resilience, and that's really been a part of the fabric of the nation for the last several hundred years. So can we talk about how Africans first got to Venezuela? Mm-hmm. So as we know, across the continent of Latin America and the Caribbean, just the Americas in general, including the United States and Canada, you know, the transatlantic slave trade was critical in bringing, unfortunately, bringing Africans to the Americas as enslaved labor. And so Venezuela, many Afro-Venezuelans are descendants of the formerly enslaved who were exploited as pearl divers, as cacao farmers, as people who've worked and were exploited on different plantations across the country for raw materials um, for Europe. And what year did the slave, around what year, I guess, not exactly, did the slave trade start? Um, And so the slave trade in the Americas and generally, as we see, started, you know, in the late 15th century, early 16th centuries. And so one of the earliest rebellions in Venezuela took place in the 1500s of enslaved Africans and indigenous nations. Can you talk a little bit about the rebellions? Because in America, a lot of these rebellions have been erased. I'm sorry, I don't mean not America, United States. A lot of these rebellions have been erased from history Mm -hmm. and memory. 
Yeah, um, there are some incredible moments. For example, the rebellion of Andres Sote in the 1500s, which was led by Andres Sote, who is a celebrated hero in Venezuelan history against the Spanish crown. We also have what's probably the most commemorated maroon rebellion is of Cimarron. Hold, hold um, on. Um, once, I don't think people understand what maroons are. Yes, I was about to, of course, I was about to jump into that. So Cimarron or Maroon in um, English uh, refers to people who were formerly enslaved and who fought for their freedom through different means. And also many times Maroon societies, they weren't just like singular rebellions, but also built entire societies of formerly enslaved Africans and indigenous peoples of the Americas. And so we've seen that all across the continent, including in the United States. But for example, in Colombia, they're referred to as Palenques. In Brazil, referred to as Quilombos. And most of the English-speaking Caribbean as Maroons. As you've seen, like in Jamaica, there's Queen Nanny of the Maroons. And they've had different types of legacies in terms of how they've tried to negotiate with power and how people have tried to negotiate their sovereignty. And so in the case of Venezuela, they're referred to as Cimarron which the word itself actually is translated to escaped cattle. And so that was a derogatory term that was used to refer to the formerly enslaved who liberated themselves. And in contemporary Venezuela, people have, Afro-Venezuelans in particular, have reclaimed the word as a term of endearment and empowerment politically. And so we see in different cases the different cimarron or cimarronas who've led really incredible struggle in Venezuela. And what they created in Venezuela, instead of calling them palenques or quilombos, were cumbes. And these cumbes were societies of essentially that were organized around principles of African and indigenous sovereignty and ancestry. And so people were able to preserve um, many of their traditions despite colonialism. And so the one rebellion that is probably the most well-known in Venezuela and that actually on May 10th, it celebrates, there's like a national commemorative holiday, El Dia de la Afro-Venezolanidad, or the Day of Afro-Venezuelan Identity, is in honor of Jose Leonardo Chirino, who is actually a descendant of African and indigenous families. And he led a rebellion in 1795 against Spanish powers in the city of Coro, which is now in the state of Falcón. And his face is on a lot of different, you know, political publications, educational literature. His name is invoked in many organizational spaces. You know, people are really inspired by by his legacy, not just as a singular individual, but also as a representative of a longer history and movement. Okay. Well, it's actually interesting. Around the same time in Haiti, there was Toussaint L'Ouverture, who was um, beginning his insurrection or rebellion. Was there any, I guess, inspiration from that? Yes, of course. You know, it's said that Jose Leonardo Chirino had contact with the Haitian people and their rebellions. As we know, in 1791, the Haitian revolution kind of, that's the inception point that many people refer to with some of the earliest rebellions and also the ceremony of Bois which, you know, is rooted in African spiritualities, mainly Yoruba and Bantu. And so, you know, there's definitely, there's very little archival evidence thus far that proves this. However, uh, many Venezuelans and Afro-Venezuelans in particular speak to this moment in Haitian revolutionary history as an important touchstone or foundational for some of the revolutionary fervor in the continent. You know, Haitians, and before they became Haitians, Africans who were fighting on ID on the land in Kiskeya, they fought not just for the liberation and end to colonialism on the island, but also were fighting for liberation, freedom, and self-determination for all enslaved peoples, not just in the Americas, but globally. Haitians are said to have had influence in some of the rebellions in Greece that were happening in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Haitians have been documented to have had a hand in some of the the creation of cities in the United States in the 19th century in places like Chicago, contributions to the city of New Orleans. So Haitians in Venezuela are you know, it was a very critical time, particularly across the maroon lines and territories. Now, there's also the more official histories um, that speak to the exchanges between Alexander Petion and Simon Bolivar during the time of post-Haitian revolutionary success, where Haiti was actually, you know, a beacon of liberty for all of the Americas. 
Haitians actually offered support militarily with soldiers, a printing press, ships, weapons, and all kinds of materials to Simon Bolivar as he fought for independence, um, not just for Venezuela, but for the Gran Colombia in South America against the Spanish crown. And also Simon Bolivar, as well as Francisco de Miranda in his time, sought refuge in, in Haiti and, and were on. actually um, housed. Jeanette, can we, yes. just, can we just backtrack? Because most people don't know what exactly happened on May of 1795 with Jose Chirano and Jose Gonzalez? Yeah, before I get into kind of the what happened on that day, I want to just read a few quotes that might help people to just understand the significance of Haiti for the Venezuelan people. So one is from former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, which after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, Venezuela absolved all debt all financial debt to the island country. And the quote goes, Haiti has no debt with Venezuela, just the opposite. Venezuela has a historical debt with that nation, with that people for whom we feel not pity, but rather admiration, and we share their faith and their hope. And then, you know, Jesus Chucho Garcia, who's an Afro-Venezuelan historian and the consul general for the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela in New Orleans, up until fairly recently, expresses, Haiti represents a moral and political reference. Chavez once said, you cannot pay back a moral debt, and what Haiti gave us is unpayable. And so I just think that's really important when we think about just the integration of Latin America and the Caribbean, this idea of a larger African diaspora and Afro-America, you know, because this is something that our peoples have been fighting for for a very long time, and that's critically important. So Essentially, in 1795, you know, José Leonardo Chirino organized a maroon rebellion in Coro Falcón in 1795. And so a lot of Venezuelan historians actually believe that Chirino traveled regularly to Curaçao and San Domingue before it became Haiti. And that was part of his work. Curaçao is an island that belongs to the Dutch and San Domingo is the capital of Dominican Republic, right? San Domingue was actually the name that referred to Haiti before it became an independent nation. So it's its, it's colonial name. It's oh, French okay. colonial name. Yes. Okay. Um, but it is currently Santo Domingo is the name of the Dominican Republic's capital. And Curaçao is, yes, an island where there was a lot of trade between that time. And so many records suggest that José Leonardo Chirino you know, probably trained with or received some sort of support from allies in San Domingue, from Africans. And he, along with others, on May 10th, launched this widespread rebellion of hundreds of enslaved as well as free Blacks and indigenous peoples. And the, you know, the indigenous folks were the Hirahara, the Ahagua, and the Caracas indigenous peoples. They launched attacks on several different haciendas all across Coro and other parts of Venezuela. But, you know, one of the challenging things is how to document these histories. A lot of these moments in African and indigenous resistance are not well documented in the archives, are not as explicit as we would like. So there has to be, you know, some sort of, there's a lot of oral history surrounding the moment of Jose Leonardo, his rebellion and the Coral Rebellion. So one of the things that happened is when Chirino and his forces reached the central square of Coro, a lot of the Criollo slave-owning elites who are the actual Spaniards living in the territory of Venezuela arrested these black maroons and executed 86 others by firearm. And so he himself was captured several months later in August of 1795. And, you know, he was in a colonial fashion, publicly executed and physically dismembered. And his body parts were shown, you know, across the town as an example of what not to do because you would be brutally punished by the colonial powers at the time. And unfortunately, Chirino, his wife and his children were separated and sold to different haciendas in Venezuela at the time. And so, you know, this is just another episode in like a long history of incredibly inspiring and courageous resistance that's taken place in Venezuela. And it's not unlike what we've seen in other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, and especially what we've seen in the history of the Haitian Revolution. A small question before we move on. Of course. Was there any kind of retaliation taken? Like, did they tighten the laws? Did they mm -hmm. change for the... Is it rebellion or insurrection? 
You know, rebellion uh, is the most commonly used word in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the U.S. people may also consider it a historical insurrection. I prefer to use the language that, that folks are using in Venezuela. And then in terms of legal repercussions, definitely, I don't have the specifics of which laws were tightened, but definitely in the wake of Chirino's rebellion, there was at least a greater amount of surveillance, definitely, you know, much more concerns across the region about the success of rebellions. You know, it's very similar to when the Haitian revolution took place. That revolutionary process spurred not only inspiration across the continent amongst Black and Indigenous peoples, but also fear amongst the Creole elites and, you know, colonial settlers, essentially, right? So we definitely should assume, and rightfully so, that there were probably laws that radically changed in the wake of Chirino's rebellion. And if you were to compare slavery in Venezuela to slavery in the U.S., how would you compare it? Like, was it very similar or were there different aspects to it? You know, I think the transatlantic slave trade and slavery you know, it looked different in each region, though the system itself was fundamentally the same. I think most notably in the United States, there was a much more long-term process of breeding slaves, essentially, and enslaved peoples. In comparison to other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, there was a continual importation and broader societal mixing, whereas in the United States, there was much more of an intention to kind of halt the import of enslaved Africans and to essentially use breeding as a form of not only labor reproduction, but also to internalize different forms of that slavery in future generations, which is slightly distinctive, which is fairly distinctive, I'd say, in comparison to most parts of Latin America and the Caribbean that also experienced um, slavery in the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, let's, can we just for, for forward a, a, a hundred years and sure. can we talk about Simón Bolívar? Sure. So Simón Bolívar is known as Venezuela's liberator. He was a man who, he himself came from a Creole elite family, but had visions of independence from Spain in Latin America and the Caribbean. And, you know, he also had a relationship, as I mentioned earlier, to Haiti. And his relationship to Haiti is incredibly pivotal to understanding today's Bolivarian revolution. You know, Bolivar sought support and solidarity from the people of Haiti in 1815, which followed the 1804 revolutionary triumph on January 1st, 1804. And as I mentioned earlier, he had established a relationship with Haiti's president at the time, Alexander Petion, who provided Bolivar and his troops both refuge and shelter, food, all types of material aid, military aid, financial aid, and, you know, provided him with soldiers, with a printing press, with ships, with arms, in order to fight success and successfully win the struggle for independence in South America under this vision of the Gran Colombia, which included Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador. So, you know, Alexander Petion and the Haitian people did this and exchanged with Bolivar under the condition that once Bolivar one independence, that he would abolish slavery in all the territories that his forces successfully liberated. And so there were multiple times in which Bolivar went to Haiti for support to recuperate, rearm, and regroup. And another quote I want to share with people is from one of his letters written on December 4th, 1816, before he sailed back to South America and he wrote, you know, he kind of etched into history this debt that Venezuela has with Haiti and the Haitian people. And it says, if men are bound by the favors they have received, be sure, General Marion, that the countrymen and myself will forever love the Haitian people and the worthy rulers who make them happy. So after this last voyage, Bolivar was victorious. And so he actually was able to liberate he and his forces, which were a very, I guess we could say racially diverse forces. We had black leadership, indigenous participation, women, Manuela Sainz, who was actually Bolivar's partner at the time, um, was also very high ranking in this kind of independence forces. And they were able to free what we know today as Brazil, Guyana, Ecuador, Colombia, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Bolivia, um, northern Peru, and Panama, which we know as today as, as Panama, but was actually part of Colombia before Panamanian independence, which essentially was a U.S.-backed project. So... 
Bolivar declared slavery abolished, you know, in honor of his agreement with Petion and the Haitian people. However, there was a really intense internal struggle in Venezuela. A lot of the people who fought for independence were not necessarily abolitionists. And so what we saw is that it took approximately 38 years until Venezuela abolished slavery. And that was 1854. And it was under President Monagas. So, you know, this is one of the things that definitely Venezuelans reflect upon in terms of their historical debt. It's not only that Haiti contributed to Venezuelan independence, and because of that, Venezuela was able to reach victory, but also that Venezuelans owe the Haitian people an eternal debt for not having abolished slavery immediately. And so that's something that Venezuelans talk about fairly regularly. And so can you talk about like, how were the Afro-Venezuelans involved? Were they infantrymen? Were they making arms? Like, what was their yeah. role in the revolution? You know, I, beyond what I've mentioned in terms of just uh, military leadership and participating in different troop forces, I can't really say much more than that. I actually don't have much more research in terms of just the detailed contributions, but more broad strokes as they were involved in almost every level of, of the independence forces at the time. In America, for example, there was segregation and then yeah. there was redlining, Jim Crow laws that kind of kept the classes separate. What was Venezuela like compared to that? From what people have shared with me in terms of their oral histories on Venezuela, nothing along the lines of Jim Crow has come up or nothing similar along the lines of Jim Crow had emerged. But again, my research and my work hasn't really focused on that particular moment, like the late 1800s and early 1900s. In general, you know, what the early 1900s are kind of marked by in Venezuela is the beginning of essentially, you know, the oil boom and the beginning of kind of the restructuring of Venezuelan society at the hands of transnational corporations and the United States, which clearly had a very overwhelming impact across the country and particularly in campesino and working class areas because so many people were looking for work and labor that ended up working in different sectors of this kind of like emergent oil industry. Now, what the racialized kind of dynamics of that were beyond the majority of working class and campesino folks being black themselves, you know, we'd have to we'd have to ask another Venezuelan historian. But I think, yeah, that's where I would I would leave that right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. So early 1900s comes America and its colonization. How would you compare that to the Spaniards? And what did America do like for the next 50 years? <laughs> um so essentially you know comparing the united states to other colonial powers you know in in the 19th century you know the united states is kind of emerging as one of the superpowers in the region i guess you could say you know in terms of its influence and its ability to dominate or or navigate certain political, economic, and military conditions. What we see, you know, the westward expansion of the United States, right, manifest destiny, which essentially leads to the concession of what is now the U.S. Southwest, including California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, a wide, you know, all these other states, you know, and subsequently we see the U.S., you know, begin to invade and um, meddle in other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. The U.S. was actually a really important player after the Haitian Revolution. France, you know, demanded financial restitution equivalent today to $24 billion from Haiti. And essentially, part of the reason that France was able to demand that successfully was because they threatened military intervention and also had U.S. support. The U.S. did not recognize Haiti as an independent republic, which also had a really intense impact on even Venezuelan and Haitian relations at the time. Simon Bolivar, for example, convened the Congreso de Panama or the Panama Congress, which was the first regional convening of all states, independent states in the hemisphere, and Haiti was excluded. And namely, most historians in Venezuela speak to this moment as one of the kind of like key or critical moments of U.S. pressure in regional sovereignty and regional integrationist efforts. So the U.S., you know, even at that early stage of its development, you know, having been a settler colonial state or emerging settler colonial state and also, um, you know, based on 
indigenous genocide and African enslavement, we see the United States kind of also emerging as an imperial power. Now, you know, Spanish and European colonialism does persist in many ways through contemporary imperialism. We see it on the African continent. We see it in the case of Haiti. We see it in the case of um, different parts of Asia. But clearly, the United States is definitely a heavier center of global power. You know, the U.S. dollar dominates in every financial transaction. The U.S. has supported coups Mm -hmm. in in nearly every country of Latin America and the Caribbean and and beyond. We've seen support for regime change, quote unquote. We've seen the implementation of economic blockades. We've seen the theft of resources. For example, in 1915, the United States occupied Haiti and also the Dominican Republic was occupied around the same time period. And one of the first things that we see the United States do is actually take the gold from the Haitian Central Bank. So, you know, these things are happening simultaneously as, you know, the United States and transnational corporations are developing Venezuela's oil economy. So in the 20th century, what we see in Venezuela is this moment or this era called La Cuarta República or the Fourth Republic. And the characterization of the Cuarta República is that it's a time of a two-party system, a time of widespread U.S. intervention in the country hmm. and dominance of the economic system. You know, most people... Sounds familiar. Yes, it does sound familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and the U.S., you know, because of these conditions, most Venezuelans are living in really impoverished conditions. And also there's a lot of insurgency or rebellion on behalf of the people of Venezuela, you know, similar to what we've seen in other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean with guerrilla organizing and guerrilla groups who've, you know, mobilized in the countrysides and in the mountains of majority African and indigenous peoples. We also see the emergence of, you know, different communist and social parties and formations. And, you know, Afro-Venezuelans in particular are organizing in all these different spaces. There's a woman who's often celebrated in Venezuelan history. Her name is Argelia Laya. She was Afro-Venezuelan. She was a founder of the Communist Party in Venezuela and also a, a leader of a guerrilla movement in the mountains of Lara State. She's originally from Barlovento. And so we have all these different contributions from Afro-Venezuelans throughout the 20th century, you know, fight for, for different types of equal rights. But, you know, fundamentally, people are fighting for an end to colonialism. And this time, it's also under the United States. Are you familiar with uh, General Perez Jimenez? Mm-hmm. You want to talk with about Marcos. that coup? Yeah, well, what I'll, I definitely want to do is use that to kind of maybe transition a little bit into what's happening today because the day of his overthrow in 1958 is actually the day that most recently we've seen a U.S. backed coup take place in Venezuela. Marcos Perez Jimenez was part of the Venezuelan military and was essentially a dictator of Venezuela. And he. Yeah, and he was supported and propped up by the United States. And so, you know, at the time of his overthrow, you know, people, there were massive demonstrations against repression, and he was, you know, pushed out by different armed forces of the Venezuelan, of Venezuela, as well as by popular support on January 23rd, 1958. And El 23 de Enero is actually a name of not just, uh, it's not just a commemorative date in Venezuela, but also the name of one of the most revolutionary barrios or neighborhoods in Caracas, where, you know, it's a commemorative date that people continue to hold very dear to kind of like this legacy of Venezuelan resistance. So this past 23 de Enero, or this past January 23rd, was when we saw the Venezuelan opposition supported by the United States try to misappropriate this date for their purposes. Um, oh, wait, wait um, can you explain? Okay, well, who tried yeah. to misappropriate this date? The U.S.-backed political opposition currently in Venezuela. With Guaido? Yes, Juan Guaido. Okay. I like calling him um, Chevron Guaido, just as a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, this is a real dilemma because internationally, you know, it's the Venezuelan opposition, and I'm talking about a very right-wing, extreme and violent, both literally violent and also very racist and very classist opposition trying to appropriate this popular commemorative date. And internationally, people are perceiving this as a democratic move, right? Um, That Juan Guaido is ushering in a new era of democracy in Venezuela. And that's 
a farce. The year actually after, in 1959, after the toppling of Marcos Perez Jimenez, actually Fidel Castro was invited to Venezuela. And so, you know, this year in particular was very powerful for the actual Venezuelan grassroots movements because it was the 60th anniversary of Fidel's visit to Venezuela, which was his first visit to the country, in which he spoke about the historical debt that Cuba even has to the Venezuelan people because of Simón Bolívar, because of all the solidarity that Venezuelans showed the Cuban revolutionary forces. You know, so this year in particular, on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban revolution and the 60th anniversary of the popular overthrow of Marcos Pérez, Jimenez, we see the U.S. try to intervene in Venezuela and attempt a coup in the 21st century. Yeah, we talked about that last week with Mike Kreisner from Empire Files, mm -hmm. and we talked about the one-day coup. Um, yes. Are you familiar at all with the shock doctrine? Yes, Naomi Klein's um, book. Yeah, how does that apply to Venezuela since, like, say, 1988? Well, you know, in 1989, Venezuela, there's a particular moment called El Caracaso. And the Caracaso in Venezuela was a time when the Venezuelan people rebelled against Carlos Andres Perez and neoliberalism. You know, the prices of everyday items were skyrocketing. Gas prices and bus fares were inaccessible. Most people had little to no access to food. And so we see a widespread rebellion on February 28th, 1989, that, you know, lasted for several days across Venezuela, but mainly in the capital and in the towns of Guatire and Guarenas. Okay. Um, um, can you talk about more about those towns? Like, was it mainly indigenous? Like, who made up those towns? The majority of the people along the Caribbean coastline in Venezuela are Afro-Venezuelan or have some African descendancy. Also, you know, this capital Caracas was actually, it's named after the nation, the indigenous nation Caracas, which was led by the indigenous leader Guaycaipuro. So many people in Caracas, Guarenas, and Guatire, particularly of more progressive and revolutionary sectors, identify as descendants of those African and indigenous leaders. And the reason why I mentioned the Caracaso in relation to your question about, you know, essentially the, the shock of neoliberalism is that this was a pivotal point in Venezuelan history that spoke to kind of the, the people's desire for another type of economic and political system. And this is also what inspired former President Hugo Chavez, who at the time was in the military, to organize a um, civic military takeover, which took place in 1992 on February 2nd. And although the civilian and military takeover of 1992 was unsuccessful in replacing the government with a more popularly supported governance and leadership, Hugo Chavez in this particular moment became etched in Venezuelan memory and Venezuelan grassroots in the Venezuelan poor as a leader of the people, which is why by the time he ran for president under the Movimiento Quinta República or the Fifth Republic movement, you know, people had already mobilized across different sectors. And this is also where we see certain leaders like President Nicolás Maduro, who at the time was a bus driver and union organizer, and others who are, are part of the revolutionary leadership currently. Wait, um, um, so mm -hmm. Nicolás Maduro, can you actually talk about that? Um, Nicolás Maduro was just a mere bus driver, and he became the president? Yes. Wow. How did that happen? Well, Nicolás Maduro, he at first, when after being a bus driver and a union organizer, when Hugo Chávez was elected in 1998 and became president in 1999, we see Nicolás Maduro in a variety of roles in the government. One of his most memorable roles outside of being current president was as the Venezuelan foreign minister. And it was during his tenure that we actually saw Venezuela build alliances across everywhere in the world, you know, the African continent. Venezuela has diplomatic relations with every country on the African continent. The first time ever in its history, Venezuela fortified or strengthened its ties across the Middle East, Asia, also sought, you know, at that point in time to rebuild integration and cooperation across Latin America and the Caribbean. So, you know, Nicolás Maduro is really actually a pivotal leader in this particular moment in the early years of Chávez's administration, building up, you know, the kind of international relations of this new, you know, socialist vision for the country. 
why where is the invisibility of the african diaspora and the indigenous diaspora you think i know you're going to be a little second it's like a guess you're taking is that blackout intentional in american media because we only see people like chevron guaido and leopoldo i would say that i think in general you know the us has characterized venezuela historically as a couple of things right people know venezuela as an oil producing nation people maybe know that venezuelans have played in different major league baseball teams in the united states the corporate media has also talked about venezuela as you know the home to mis venezuelas which typically are you know blonde blue-eyed tall thin white venezuelan elite women and so this has kind of characterized venezuela in corporate media for decades what we see now that's not being covered in corporate media is a country that is majority black majority indigenous that majority working class that has taken control of its resources that has really sought out to establish its own path and is working towards a socialist and anti-imperialist a very openly anti-imperialist vision um that looks to create many centers of power so i definitely feel that corporate media intentionally does not show this side of venezuela this black led revolutionary vision because i think if most people in the united states actually heard and saw what was going on in venezuela from the majority black masses and what they've been able to build you know 2.5 million homes in 6 years cooperation like exchanges with cuba you know people have had their eyesight restored in venezuela mass education for free i myself have gone i went to the universidad bolivariana de venezuela which is a state school with incredible pedagogy with an incredible community based approach if people actually Wait, saw um, these quick things quick question just for comparison how much did you pay for the college? in Venezuela. Um I myself as an international student paid very little. At the time it was like 200 and something bolivares a semester which was probably I mean I don't know the exchange rate at this point in time but it was it was literally you know maybe a, a less than like I know for sure it was less than $100 a semester. It was and for Venezuelan citizens they paid nothing. Wow. So and that was a graduate degree program. It was a master's program. Um yeah in America uh people are selling their blood to pay off their student loans and I'm not mm-hmm. joking about this Exactly exactly so I just want to emphasize that I think if people actually saw these things if the people in the United States actually saw what black Venezuelans indigenous Venezuelans have actually done in the last 20 years when there would be more solidarity there would be more organizing and there would be more optimism and more hope the United States is plagued by incredible rates of pessimism, depression, you know, capitalism has both a material and a psychological effect on people. And in Venezuela we actually see that folks believe and know that they can have something different. And that's really inspiring and corporate media definitely does not want to show that. Um another question. Suppose like after the Bolivarian Revolution, I wanted to buy a house. Like mm-hmm. would I have to get a private loan or would the government give me a loan? It depends. If you want a home and you are working class, have never had a home, you can apply for public housing through the Misión Vivienda program, which is the one that I mentioned that has built 2.5 million homes in the last 6 years or so. And, you know, this is 2.5 million homes for a population of 32 million people is pretty significant. Venezuela is essentially the world's largest housing developer. And So you can apply for housing. Clearly there's a lot of people who are applying for housing, so you can also if that process takes too long, you can also pursue other options. So if you want to build a home, you can acquire land. If it's a collective of people, you can acquire idle land through taking it over. So doing like a toma. You can take over public property that way. So um, um basically if like let's say a group of 30 Venezuelans wanted to build some kind of collective housing, they literally mm-hmm. have to start like digging there and then it becomes and building and it'll become their house yeah so essentially let's say there's like a public lot that's not being used you verify it through the city you know through the mayor's office or the you know city council and it's like oh actually you know this public lot isn't slated for anything there's no development that's going to happen it's also not privately owned you as a group of five or more can take that land over and begin to develop whatever you'd like. 
and of course there are different types of like legal protocols in terms of papers that need to be signed etc but essentially like that is what you can do in order to secure housing for people in venezuela i've seen it done multiple times with the movimiento pobladores and movimiento pioneros which are two movements that essentially are focused on housing and land justice and where they bring together dozens of families around this. And so it's not just about building housing to have a home, but it's also building housing and having homes to build a community. And so the idea is, you know, more collective cohesion and development in that way. So in the case of Venezuela, you can go and pursue all those options. And then if you just want to go the traditional route, you can secure loans at a state operated bank or at a private bank. So let's say you lose your job and you can't pay back the mortgage. Are they going to foreclose on you or do you have any protections? Um, definitely the Venezuelan labor law provides a lot of protections for people and their, not just their homes, but just their integrity in terms of unemployment. And so I've never heard of a case of someone having foreclosed, having had their home foreclosed in Venezuela. And I think the labor law protects people who have been recently fired or have recently taken a leave. But for example, unemployment rates, I don't have the exact statistic right now, but are very low in Venezuela. Employment rates are very high. People actually have jobs in Venezuela. And so it's uncommon that you'll find that people are unemployed. Just for the record, last year, the U.S. foreclosed over a million homes. Um, wow. And there are also more empty homes than there are homeless people. And just this week, 30 people in Chicago died because it was too cold. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, uh, you guys wow. don't get snow, do you? In Venezuela, there's, like, cold. I mean, in, like, the Andes. There's like places that are cold. Uh, I just want to read because I actually have a copy of the labor law before me. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of wanted to read some of the protections. Article 25, which is chapter three, it's the right to work and the responsibility to work. And it states that the social process of work has as its main objective to overcome forms of capitalist exploitation, as well as to produce goods and services that guarantee our economic dependence, satisfy human needs through the just distribution of wealth and create social, material, and spiritual conditions that allow for the family to be the fundamental space for the integral development of people. You know, that's just, I mean, it's incredible that like a law like this names, I mean, it's a labor law and names capitalism, you know, as something that we want to overcome. So then it has chapter four, which is suspending work, and it's articles 71 to 75. And here the summary is, you know, work may be suspended in the following cases. An illness or accident caused by the workplace or not that makes it impossible for the worker to keep working for a period no longer than 12 months. And then, you know, it goes to during such a suspension, the worker can't be fired, but also the employer does not necessarily have to pay the salary. And then there's a question around maternity payments, which is separate. And actually, people have incredible maternity leave under this worker's law and paternity leave as well. It's included, and also people who are pregnant are not allowed, like it's not allowed to fire people who either are pregnant or recently gave birth in order to protect the integrity of that household. So I think there's a two-year cap, if I'm not mistaken, that people, you know, are protected as workers. Wow. I don't know if people remember, but Matt Brunig called this important woman a scumbag when his wife was seven months pregnant. And they fired him at that point. And what about the Amazon and the environment? How is that Mm -hmm. protected? Um, Well, there's incredible work being done in Venezuela with the eco-socialist movement. In 2017, there was a, uh, the first, La Primera Asamblea Eco-Socialista took place in November of 2017. And essentially, Venezuelans convened this international eco-socialist assembly or encuentro to meet with other peoples of the world, uh, African and indigenous, from all different continents and all different countries, to talk about how to protect regions like the Amazon, um, how to protect water, fresh water, how to protect ecological diversity, and how to repair the damage that has been done by capitalist industries. How, if at all possible, to grow water? How can we restore water, fresh water to the world? How can we reverse the damages to the soil? 
How can we encourage, you know, trade networks and bartering systems like the treque? What is the treque? So the treque is a type of bartering system in Venezuela that's rooted in indigenous practices. So essentially, different markets have popped up across the country, particularly in the state of Yaracuy. It's a very strong movement where every two weeks, the marketplace, it's kind of like a farmer's market equivalent, but there's no money that's circulated. You can only exchange goods, services, knowledge. So if I'm like, for example, a farmer, I can exchange my seeds for somebody who's a psychologist who will give me a counseling session. Um, you know, so there's different types of things that people are doing to remedy the challenges of the economic war um, that are rooted in ancestral indigenous and African practices and also are eco-socialists such as the Treke movement. Right now, I just read that American troops have landed on the beaches of Colombia. Mm-hmm. What can we do to stop our government from doing damage? Yeah, I think in terms of what can happen to challenge U.S. imperialism and to prevent war in Venezuela, because that's essentially what we're, what we're seeing right now is that the United States and allies through the Lima Group, which is, you know, this unconstitutional coalition, essentially, of right-wing states across the Americas, are preparing a scenario for U.S. intervention. And yes, the United States... And its military outpost in Colombia is definitely of a huge concern. There's also been recent new sanctions applied to Venezuela, which essentially is a blockade on the Venezuelan oil company, PDVSA. And I just want to say this before I tell people how to get involved and how to take action, because this is also really critical. U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton estimated that the latest sanctions would cause Venezuela to lose around $11 billion in exports in just 2019 alone, and freeze around $7 billion in assets. It also, he said that the frozen oil revenues in the United States would be transferred to a future transitional government under Juan Guaido. So far, current Venezuelan Minister of Foreign Affairs, Jorge Arriaza, has stated that the sanctions over the last several years have caused Venezuela a loss of $23 billion. And this has had a direct impact on what Venezuela can import, how it can manage its finances, on the access to medicines, and a widespread of other issues that people probably see on the news in corporate media, but are not contextualized by the fact that these are conditions created by sanctions. Now, this blockade is devastating, and the impacts it'll have are countless. And so what people can do. In the U.S., there is a growing movement across the United States and Canada called the Anti-Venezuela Sanctions Campaign, which talks about um, how to stop economic warfare in the form of a blockade and sanction. Um, there are different organizations that are part of that. People can check out the Facebook page at End Venezuela Sanctions. You can also go to, you can write us at endvenezuelasanctions at gmail.com. And we encourage people to take action, to send solidarity statements, to also contact your congressional reps and ask them, demand that they issue statements denouncing the Trump administration for applying these new economic measures and for threatening Venezuela with uh, military intervention and for the political support of this coup, there's still time, you know, to take action against this and to challenge U.S. imperialism because it's not just Venezuelan people and the Venezuelan democracy and Venezuelan sovereignty that's at stake, which is incredibly important. That's Those are millions of lives. But also it's important to mention that this will have an impact all across Latin America and the Caribbean and an impact in the United States, whether or not people are conscious of it. And the world. Exactly. And so it's critically important right now that folks get involved. And I also encourage people to continue to listening to different podcasts, to different radio programs that have this alternative view that can actually show and speak to what the Venezuelan people are saying on the ground, such as Venezuela Analysis, Telesur English, Tatui TV, Alba TV, Alba Ciudad, Resumen, Latinoamericano. There are many different resources. And historically. <laughs> exactly. And historically, it's important to understand that, you know, the present is not without a past. So we have to understand where all of these different things have come from. But as you mentioned, you know, the situation is dire and people need to act swiftly. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I know you are very busy. Um, if people wanted to contact you through Twitter or Facebook, like how would they contact you? Well, I would encourage people to contact um, me through Venezuela Analysis. So please, you can write us collectively at editor at venezuelanalysis.com. If you have questions, want to know more just generally about Venezuela or know more about any of the historical moments we've covered today. If people want to learn how to get involved, also email us at editor at venezuelanalysis.com. You can also email the end Venezuela sanctions at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with the campaign. And that would be the, the easiest way I would say um, to, to follow us. And how would they donate to your newspaper, Venezuela? Yeah. Um, so at Venezuela Analysis, we have a donate button on our website, which is through PayPal. And we are always looking for more sustaining donors or even one-time donations. Our website and our work is all reader funded. We're independent and it's only through the support of people who, who support us, our readers, that we're able to stay online and support our team on the ground. Yep. So I suggest every time you hear somebody say, look at Venezuela, just download that link and just like click pay and donate something. <laughs> exactly. I highly encourage that as well. And well, I hope you live in Caracas. Um, I live in between Los Angeles and Caracas, so I travel back and forth. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. are things calm in Caracas? Or? Yeah, we, yeah. I've actually talked to a few people on the ground there things in Caracas and most of the country are fairly calm. People are, you know, are trying to live their day-to-day lives. You know, it's living your day-to-day life knowing that the U.S. can invade at any given moment, which sounds maybe like a, a contradiction, but, you know, people are brave. People are empowered. People know that they're on the right side of history in Venezuela. And, yeah, and I think, you know, grassroots movements are mobilizing, holding assemblies, and all kinds of things. So yeah, so I think that's really, just really important to know that there's not this level of societal chaos and implosion that we see in corporate media. Venezuela and Venezuelans are a country that wants to live in peace and have the right to life with dignity. So, so yeah, so I think people need to remember that. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, we really appreciate that. And listening to all these like programs, like give me a little bit of hope that another world is possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, have a great day. You too. Thank you so much. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.